This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. So Matthew chapter 15. And if that seems like an awfully long jump from last week, well, last week we pretty much wrapped up our flashback teachings. And in case you don't recall the context of that, we'd begun our studies in Matthew. We'd begun our red letter studies of Jesus's teachings. We'd started in chapter five. It didn't occur to me till long after the fact that Jesus actually came on the scene in chapter three. And while he did not begin teaching specifically until chapter five, that there are things from his life and the things that he did in those chapters three and four that are worth learning about and taking examples from. But we've pretty much wrapped that up as of last week. And so we're back on track with our normal studies in chapter 15 is where we're going to begin. And let's just go ahead and dive right in. I don't think there's any context that we need to pick up. It starts a new topic here. So chapter 15 of Matthew begins, then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. And it's, you read that, and if you're at all familiar with, with the, let's call it, let's be kind, let's call it a relationship between the scribes, Pharisees, and Jesus. If you're at all familiar with the relationship between these guys, this coterie of uh, strict religionists and the Lord who was the word of God walking around in the flesh, then you read these first two verses and the first thing that comes to my mind anyway is, were they just asking to be reproved? They were just setting the ball up on the tee and handing Jesus the bat and saying, please hit this thing. So let's read it again. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. And you can just tell. You can just, it's so easy to read into the text an attitude problem. An attitude problem and a fault-finding spirit that's with them. But Jesus, verse 3, But he answered and said unto them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? Let's just stop it right there. I mean, that doesn't get any more perfect. Here, let's, let's, ask, let's ask the master why his disciples are violating a tradition. And let's see what happens. Well, he served it right back in their face. Have you ever watched tennis or anything like that? Or ever played it? And you sent a serve across, the, across that net and it was a beautiful serve just... And that ball hits and your opponent absolutely slams it right back over the net and nails it in that back corner and there's no way that you could even catch it and you lose in a split second. You lose that, whatever they call that, that volley, that hand, I don't know what, I don't know tennis uh, lingo. That's exactly what happened here. They served a beautiful criticism right over Jesus' net. And he blasted it right back into their teeth, perfect and legal and far more poignant. 
Why do you also transgress the, transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father or mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Now, again, you have to put some imagination into, into some of this. I don't mean as far as uh, the teaching is concerned, certainly not where doctrine is concerned, but you have to use some imagination when you're reading this, picturing what these guys looked like. They showed up on the scene. They served a criticism out of its, their usual fault-finding spirit. And then they got handed back such a, and forgive the use of the word vicious, okay? They got handed back such a, a vicious return that I'm sure it left them standing there deer in headlights, completely stunned and speechless. It's as though Jesus knew they were coming and it's as though he knew exactly what they were going to say. And so he goes on and says, ye hypocrites. That's always a nice thing to say to people, right? Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. All right, now let's stop and let's actually go back into what he was teaching. Well, let's actually go back further than that. So we're in Matthew chapter 15. So the Pharisees came on the scene questioning his disciples, Why do they transgress the tradition of the elders? by not washing their hands before they eat bread. Well, did a little bit of digging into this, not too much, because it's easy to fall into a very deep, deep black hole when you start digging up rabbinical traditions and Pharisaic traditions, because trust me, there's no end to the stuff. They have been writing commentaries and, and commentaries upon commentaries uh, for well over 2,000 years. So just think about that. Well over 2,000 years. And so there's always people adding things to things and giving their take on things. So they were finding fault with the disciples for not eating bread, for not eating, or for not having washed their hands before they ate. Okay, well, that's a good practice, sure. You ought to wash your hands before you eat, especially in you know times of illness and when things are going around. It's the better thing to do. But it's by no means a commandment of Almighty God. And, and if we take our time with this, I want to, because Jesus wasn't just correcting the Pharisees for having a fault-finding spirit or for presenting as commandments the traditions of men. He wasn't just correcting them. He was also correcting the basic, the overall understanding of all of his disciples. He was restoring a sense of proportion in understanding the difference between the two. Some things are policies. Some things are traditions. And though, while policies may be good, they are not necessarily commandments. We understand the difference there? For example, we have a practice or a policy or a tradition in our churches where generally speaking in the beginnings of our services we we open with prayer we encourage people to raise their hands because it's biblical and there's something about the attitude of the body that affects the attitude of the spirit 
in a manner of speaking. And then, you know, so we open with prayer and then we sing a couple of songs, maybe three on the outside, maybe once in a while. It seems like the Spirit of God wants more. And so we'll sing more because we're not so married to a routine and a schedule that we can't let God have his way with his church service, right? And then someone, maybe there'll be a special song, maybe not. And then someone will preach and then there'll be an altar service after that. Okay, now those are all fine. There's nothing wrong with any of those, even if we switch the order up a little bit, right? Because they didn't exactly spell it out back there in the book of Acts precisely how services should be conducted down to the minute and down to the event. Just about all that the apostles had to say on the matter was, you know, let all things be done decently and in order. There's more to it than that, but you could sum it up like that. And you know, make sure that it's according to the word of God, the will of God, the spirit of God, etc. It's not just anything goes. But none of these things, none of these customs or traditions or policies or whatever are in fact carved in stone commandments uttered from the throne room, are they? Because if they were, if we ever veered outside of a tradition, then we'd be transgressing the word. And then we'd be just like these guys, fussing about, did you wash your hands before you ate? No, you're a sinner. It's like, wow, man, really? Is it that bad? I mean, wash your hands before you eat. But if you forgot or you just didn't have time, be at peace. Let not your heart be troubled. You have not sinned against God. Are we tracking this so far? I hope not. Reverend DeRyder, you were an electrician. When you ever plopped down in the job van to eat your lunch or whatever you did for lunch, did you wash your hands first? Neither did I. Why? Where was the bathroom? You're still wiring it. There's no plumbing. There's nowhere to do any of that with. You get the point. You get the point. The Pharisees had, and I'm not saying that they even necessarily started this, they were just willing participants and, and continued to propagate this sort of thing. They had so added to and added to and added to all of these through the commentaries and through the Pharisees that were before them and the rabbis that were before them, all the way back to the founding of the great synagogue, which uh, happened uh, I believe Ezra and or Nehemiah were instrumental in the founding of the, of the great synagogue way back there after the exile, the return from Babylon. They had added so many things to the law and these things had then become just as much commandments to them as the actual commandments themselves that the law was no longer recognizable and it was scarcely even something that a person could fulfill. Even the law of Moses, unadulterated, was something that none of these people had ever been able to fulfill. And I'm not saying that with a fault-finding attitude. That was actually how they were. And that was one of the things that led to the decision by the, the apostles over in the book of Acts when Gentiles began coming into the faith in significant enough numbers that the question was raised, how much of the law should we as Jewish Christians now be laying upon these Gentile Christians' conscience? And they looked back at it and they examined it, the apostles that were there at the time and the church leaders, and they realized, you know, our fathers were never even really able to keep this law very well to begin with. So why should we lay upon these Gentile believers that have come in in pure and simple faith without all of the, without all of the blood and baggage that we've brought with us into the faith. Why should we lay all of that on them 
Let's just keep it simple. And I really believe that they were acting by the Spirit of God. Thus, it was recorded in the book of Acts accordingly. So you kind of get an idea. You kind of get an idea why their actions were so problematic. So they asked Jesus this question. Why do they transgress the tradition of the elders? And so then Jesus comes back with, well, why do you transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? Now, I am not attacking tradition. Some traditions are very, very good. And they are right. They really are. But many traditions are based on the culture that you live in at the time. And I'm trying to handle this very carefully because some people take this very argument that I'm making, they'll take this and they'll use it as a justification for things that are wrong, or they'll use it as a justification for lowering Christian standards that are good, or things like that. And they go, oh, that's just the traditions of men, and they just write all that off. It's like, well, hold on. You know, some of these traditions are good, and some traditions are, in fact, direct expressions of what God has commanded in His Word. And that's where we get some of our standards and where other groups get some of theirs. Sometimes it's, it's interpreted a little strictly, more strictly in some cultures and less strictly in others, but the foundation of it is right there in the Word. But we don't want to take, we don't want to turn something into a commandment that is in fact not a commandment. Case in point, right here in the Word, the washing of hands before you eat. Well, sure, it's good sanitation, it's good hygiene. But, and as Jesus will go on, Jesus will go on later on to explain concerning their particular nitpicking fault, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of a man that defiles him. Mainly, what comes out of his heart. So, you eat with unwashed hands, well, you're just being dirty. But you know what else? You're probably also giving your immune system a good kick in a good way. It'll help develop that thing. You know, we're so germophobic and sanitized and sterilized in our modern day. And sometimes it's necessary. We got hand sanitizer up in the front. It's good to use, especially if you're of the handshaking variety, which so many of us tend to be. I'll take the blame for that. It's just kind of our church culture. Tradition, not commandment, okay? But he said it's what comes out of a man. In other words, what comes out of a man's heart. Because it's out of the heart that Jesus says comes adulteries and fornications and murders and all these different things that people, you first, you first dream it in your imagination, your heart, your mind, whatever, and then what begins there then comes out as an action. It's either spoken or committed, and then the man is defiled. So eating with dirty hands, big deal. Someone might look at you like you're a barbarian, but who cares, right? We're talking about the difference between tradition and commandment. Then Jesus goes into exactly what he's finding, what, finding fault, what he's correcting the Pharisees and reproving the Pharisees for. Let's read in verse 4. For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. In other words, under the law of Moses, there was a commandment that if a person 
cursed their mother or father, that was a capital offense. That was a capital crime under the law of Moses. And that's a pretty serious offense when you think about it. Not in today's society. Children curse their parents all the time and the parents just sort of, they don't even handle it with a soft hand. They just like limp wrist that thing. Oh, now, Johnny, don't talk to your mom like that. It's like, what kind of a father are you? You need to straighten that junk out. You don't curse your parents. That's a terrible sin. Or, or mothers even taking a horribly slack hand in the raising of their children and correcting and, and disciplining them. Discipline, when done rightly, biblically, is first of all, it's not abuse. And second of all, it will straighten them out. And if they, in most cases, and if they're absolutely sociopathic and will not learn, then ultimately society is going to have to bear that burden once they're grown and gone and out of the house. But under God's law in the Old Testament for the theocracy that he established, okay, that was a law. If you cursed your mother or father, you were supposed to die. But the Pharisees, through their traditions, took that commandment watered it down. And this is what Jesus is reproving them for. He says in verse five, but ye say, whosoever shall say to his father or mother, it is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me and honor not his father or mother, he shall be free. Let's stop right there. It's a lot of words. What's he describing about? Well, it seems to speak of bribing your way out of the transgression, buying it. Well, all right, if I curse or dishonor my mother or father, but as long as I give, um, as long as I give a gift to the temple or to the priesthood or to the Pharisees or whatever by which they may be profited, then, oh, uh, well, that's all right, we'll let it slide. Okay, and the language is a little complicated there, but that's what it seems to speak of. But in verse 6, he goes on and says, Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. So he reproves them, rebukes them for not so much for their fault-finding spirit, but you know they're going to accuse him and his disciples or he or his disciples. He's going to accuse of something that was not wrong. He's going to accuse them of something that they were in fact doing wrong. It's like you guys are supposed to be masters of the law. You're supposed to be doctors of the law. And that's actually how they're described in other places. That's the, uh, the, the effective equivalent of a doctorate in the law of Moses. These were supposed to be masters of it. And yet, they had polluted it. They had compromised it. They had watered it down by their many traditions. And so he goes on. He goes on in his correction of them. Verse 7, Ye hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, speaking of Isaiah, saying, The people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So the, the core lesson there, and we can, we can actually go back to Isaiah where he actually said that. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 29, verse... 13, where he says, Wherefore the Lord said, Forasmuch as this people draw near, draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips they do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. 
And so that's how it's rendered over here in the New Testament as Jesus described it. And we sort of have that as backup. But the core lesson there is don't get the two confused. Because when you do, when you start confusing tradition, tradition and policy and things like that, when you start confusing that with commandment, then you begin to cross you begin to cross the line between grace and legalism. Actually, let me rephrase it. Let me give that. Let me give. Let me put a different word in there. It's not all about jargon, but sometimes it is very. Um, it communicates it more clearly. It, you cross the line between liberty and legalism. Now, legalism is something that we've been accused of. Our churches, people have been calling us legalists since since before we even came around. So the groups that that our churches came out of in ages gone by and, and uh, the, the development and the evolution of some things because, you know, whenever you have a Christian that has standards or you have a church that has standards and actually promotes them and teaches them, and by the way, the next, school, next set of School of Virtue classes begins last Friday of January, okay? I'm already working on it. I'm already working on it. So that's coming up. Those are... Those are special studies that are held downstairs in the fellowship hall. We set up the tables, break out the coffee and the donuts because why not be comfortable? And then we, we teach in even greater depth on certain things in the word concerning Christian life. Uh, the first set of classes that we had on that were on marriage. And so we taught on that for a few months. And uh, we dug out some pretty strong meat on the subject, and it was really good. And it's really helpful, especially when we take it to heart. So the next set of classes coming up will be on a different subject. There'll be more announcements later as we get that ready to go. But a legalist is, in fact, rarely, how do I want to put this? Rarely is someone who's ever accused of being a legalist a genuine legalist. Usually it's just somebody who has a standard that they live by according to the word of God and it convicts somebody else. And so that somebody else blasts out with that same word, the same way that leftists throw around the word bigot, right? Like you dare say something like, well, you know, homosexuality really isn't according to the word of God. You know, it's not really a right way to live. Oh, you're a bigot. Okay, fine. Well, more liberal believers are quick to throw that L word out there whenever they meet a Christian that has any kind of a stricter standard of life. Oh, you're a legalist. How am I a legalist? What a legalist actually is, is someone who they rely upon their adherence to certain tenets of the word for their salvation. They are not relying on Christ. That's a legalist. A legalist is someone who does not say in their heart or does not actually live it, I am a Christian because of what Jesus did for me. And the only part that I even had to play in that was that I accepted that sacrifice for my sins and have believed on him. Okay? Someone who actually you know, lives, a quarter, lives that. Yes, I am a, you ask him a question. How do you know that you're saved? Well, because Jesus died for me, I've believed on that. And that's what shapes and informs my life. That's just about as technical as I dare get on that kind of an answer. But if you meet somebody and you ask them, how, are you a, how is it that you know you're a Christian? What is it that makes you a Christian? If their answer is anything like, well, because I go to church on Sundays and I pay my tithe and I, um, uh, I do this and I don't do that and I avoid this and I abstain from that and, and all this. It's like, whoa, you've really missed the mark. Those are not the things that make a person a Christian. 
Because none of those things saves a person. Now, those are things that people will do because they're a Christian. Do you see how that, do you see how important it is to rightly grasp that? Because it's so easy, especially if, especially if you, if you take the word of God seriously enough to let it shape your life and let it make you live differently from most people around you, okay? It's easy to get those mixed up. It's easy to get those mixed up and say, oh, well, of course I'm a Christian. Don't you know I do this and I don't do that and I do this and I don't do that and I, I say this and I don't say that. Well, therefore I'm a Christian. Like, no, 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 no. Those are evidence, hopefully. Those are evidence that Christ is in you and has wrought these changes. But the only thing that makes a person a Christian is the blood of Jesus washed across their heart and life and carrying away their sins and changing their mind and their attitude and their spirit towards God. It, it's a whole born-again experience. It happens in an instant. We've talked about that quite often. And so after that, after that salvation experience, and then God begins to work in the life of an individual and start changing things in the way that they think and, and helping them to amend their behavior and amend, uh, amend quite a few things, their communication and, and their attitudes and things like that as he begins to bring more and more of the man and the woman underneath that standard, the new standard of Christ. Uh, well, that's where, that's where the uh, certain policies or traditions or things like that and practices have their meaning. It's not the other way around. And it's critically important for a Christian to understand that as soon as they can in their Christian life, as early as, can, as they can in the practice of their faith, we are not what we are because of what we do. We do what we do because of what God has made us through Jesus Christ. Amen? That's a fact. And as long as you keep that in the right order, then you've got the cart behind the horse where it belongs. You know, and you get that mixed up and it starts, be, it starts becoming, you know, about, it becomes all about what you do and the image you portray and all of that. And that's what makes you a believer. Well, that's when you've, that's when you've gone off course. You swung and you've missed. That's when you've committed to, to go back to the original Greek. That's when, uh, that's when you have, I don't know if it's in the verb form and the noun form, right? But that's where that Greek word hamarkia comes into play, which is where we derive the word sin, which means to miss the mark. You've shot your bow and you didn't even hit the target, let alone the bullseye. So we got to make sure that we keep that straight and organized or straight and in the right order in our own minds. So he goes on in verse 10 and says, And he called the multitude and said unto them, Hear and understand. This is where he begins to correct what the Pharisees implied in their accusation. Hear and understand. Not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. Then came his disciples and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? I love it. Don't you know the Pharisees were offended by what you said? Wringing their hands all nervous, all concerned. Well, and, and rightly so, or understandably so. Maybe not rightly, but understandably so. The Pharisees had some very serious pull in their society. They really did. 
And they could bring a lot of trouble, a lot of trouble by a person's life. I believe it, I believe, I could be wrong about this, but I believe it was by their recommendation or by their uh, edict or whatever that they could actually have a person thrown out of the temple or thrown out of the barred from the synagogues of the temple or whatever. It, it, was, it was no light thing. So we can understand that his disciples might have been a bit concerned, okay? But he says, they said, knowest thou, not, knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? But he answered and said, because Jesus, of course, was not at all concerned. It was a very light thing at all, a nothing thing to him. Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Declare unto us this parable. And so I'm actually going to jump ahead a little bit here because I want to cover this before we stop tonight. And next week we may jump back a little bit more uh, and dig into, into verses 13 and 14 because that's important. I don't want to just skip that. But I want to get to this other part first. Are ye also, verse 16, Are ye also yet without understanding? Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth into the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the draft or the draught. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, which is lies, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. Let's, let's park on this for just a few moments before we stop for the night. Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth into the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the draft or the draught. But those things which proceed out of the mouth are come forth from the heart and they, they defile the man. One might be tempted if one is inclined to use this verse as a license or as a pass to go drinking, right? Well, well, Jesus said it's not what goes into the mouth or what goes into a man that defileth a man. And of course, once you start to justify that, then you, you can justify absolutely anything. You can justify drugs. You can justify smoking, snorting cocaine. You can justify absolutely shooting up whatever. It's not what goes into the body that defiles a man. So why would that be a sin? But let's read what Jesus says. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart and they defile a man. You ever talk to somebody when they're drunk? You ever try to have a rational conversation with somebody while they're drunk? Now, some can, because there's lots of different types of drunks, right? You've got angry drunks, mean drunks, philosophical drunks. I have a family member who's one of those. Um, sad drunks, crying drunks, sloppy drunks. There's lots of different types of drunks. People react to the stuff a little bit differently. It brings certain things out, but that's the bridge right there. No, it's not necessarily what goeth into the body that defiles a man, but there is a direct corollary between what goes in and what comes out. So are you saying that it's okay to drink? No, I'm not saying that. We preach and teach against that stuff all the live long day. We live in Cheyenne. You see the results of it all the time. This is a booze-soaked town. And it's got more and more drugs coming into it than ever before. Okay? But see the corollary there. Okay? Okay? Well, because then you, 
Is it that alcohol is intrinsically sinful or is it because of what it causes? Because if you're sick enough, you go drink some NyQuil. Well, there's alcohol in that. I'm not saying it's I'm not going to tell you it's a sin to drink NyQuil unless you're drinking it to get drunk, because then that comes down to the motive of the heart. Right. The intent of the heart, which God discerns and understands. He knows when someone's trying to get something over on a technicality. Right. Somebody shoots up, somebody knocks back a couple of cold ones, somebody uh, takes into some substance into their body that affects and destroys their judgment, then what's coming out of them but a whole bunch of defilement? You've You've heard some rough stuff from people that were under the influence of things. So it's... It's worth digging down deep into this teaching to understand what Jesus was saying, okay? Because there were things in the law that restricted, very uh, rigorously restricted the diets of the Jews. They were not allowed to even eat or actually touch, let alone eat, certain, uh, certain animals, certain types of food were considered unclean. No bacon, absolutely not. That's a terrible tragedy if you ask me. In the law, there were they could not eat uh, they couldn't eat pork they could they couldn't eat anything from the pig they couldn't eat uh, crustaceans shellfish they could not eat shellfish so no crab no lobster for them and there were lots of other things as well uh, based on based on the law of Moses that they were not permitted to eat and as far as the why and the wherefores of that that's a teaching for another time but Jesus was making it clear that the spirit of it is what's most important. It's what comes out of a man that actually defiles him. Now, does that mean that there's no dietary restrictions for a Christian? Well, no, no, not really. I think there's two things that by the word we are, um, let's, just, well, let's be delicate about it. We are strongly encouraged or outright commanded to stay away from. Booze is one of them, okay? And there's lots in the word, Old Testament and New Testament that makes it clear that ought not to be in a Christian's life because of what it does to them, okay? A human being. And the other thing that we're not supposed to be eating is blood. You're not supposed to be eating blood. So as Christians, don't eat blood pudding, blood sausage. I know that there's certain traditional dishes in certain cultures that involve it being served with blood, in blood, prepared with blood or whatever. In the New Testament, the apostles even spelled that out. All those Gentile converts that were coming into the faith there in the book of Acts, significant numbers of them that were believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and needed to know what to teach these men and women, what to observe and what not to observe. What the apostles said was, you teach them to avoid fornication, which has nothing to do with diet. That has to do with behavior, it's sexual behavior. And, and to abstain from things strangled, and I think they spelled it out elsewhere to abstain from eating blood. So well, why avoid eating things that were strangled? Because I think that those were often served with the blood. And I might be wrong about that, but that's, that's what I've heard and or read concerning that. So, but I don't know of anybody that strangles their meat and meat processing anyway, so I don't think that that's really a thing anyhow. So stay away from the booze. Don't eat blood. And you're pretty much everything else as long as your conscience is clear, and that's a teaching out of the book of Romans. It's not what goes into you that defiles you. It's what comes out. And so bear that in mind also, if there are certain things that are not necessarily a sin to consume, but they, they have a very bad effect on your attitude, 
That's something else to think about. Now, I'm not putting that out there as a commandment or even as a tradition. I'm just throwing that out there as food for thought. Because some people, they eat a lot of sugar. They're super cranky. You know what I'm talking about? Too much sugar. They get all really cranky. Well, I don't know. Maybe that's something to think about. Maybe not eat so much sugar because it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. Cranky attitude, harsh, sharp words, biting outbursts of temper. That's not Christian either. Food for thought, and that's a good place to stop for the night. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving.